Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers and jump Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello there, Jane McNaughton here with you today on Countrywide. I'm looking forward to spending the next half an hour with you. Coming up on the show today, the Jobs and Skills Summit was held this week, but what is in it for the agriculture sector, which has been reliant on migrant workers for years and has been faced with huge shortages? There's been a lot of technical advances in dairy, but have you ever thought about synthetically produced milk? You'll find out more about that later in the program. And since the black summer fires, life has been pretty tough for the glossy black cockatoo. But farmers in East Gippsland in Victoria are trying to help the population rebuild. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Farm and union leaders came together on Friday to join the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt in Canberra at the Jobs and Skills Summit to announce a new working group to study the farm workers shortage. The minister says he will fight for farmers to get their fair share out of the summit. So the intention for this working group is that at this stage it will be set up for a 12-month period and the reason for that is that the government, as I think you know, uh, intends to release an employment white paper in about 12 months' time and the proposals from, from this working group will feed into that broader work. Um, the intention is that it will meet around about monthly, starting in early October. Um, there's obviously a bit of work to do before we have our first meeting, so that's the plan there. But I think the other really key point is that People shouldn't think that nothing is going to happen until we have a working group or or until we have an employment white paper. As I say, uh, for those farmers who are watching this, for those farm workers who are watching this right now, the government has already committed uh, to lift fee-free TAFE places and we're going to be fighting collectively to make sure ag gets its fair share. We've already announced an increase to the migration cap, including those skill visas, and we know that there are people out there who need those skill visas now and we're going to be doing it. One of the biggest issues that's been raised with me, uh, whether it been when I've been on farm whether whether was when I was in uh, Brent's Meatworks at Rockhampton is the incredible backlog of visas that are in the system. Minister Giles today has just announced an extra 500 staff who are going to clear that backlog. So we're we're getting on with this now. We're not waiting for meetings, um, but of course those meetings will be necessary to work with through some of the longer issues. Murray Watt, the Federal Agriculture Minister, speaking there. Fiona Simpson is president of the National Farmers Federation, and she says the task force will be more than just window dressing. There will be many farmers out there that will be hearing this announcement and sighing and saying another workforce, another task force, another group. Um, but uh, I, as I said earlier, I am focused on Minister Watt who, uh, and his delivery and his assurance and also people like Dan Walton and the unions. Uh, we are all focused on what we can agree on. We are all focused on the bigger aim and that is a strong, sustainable, viable, growing uh, agriculture industry as outlined in our 2030 roadmap and supported by government. And so I, I say to farmers who, who will be sighing uh, that we need to keep committing to working with the process. We need to keep making sure that agriculture is at the table in every discussion, whether it's around migration, whether it's around skills, whether it's about rural and regional Australia and how we do deliver some of these outcomes in rural and regional Australia. We are at the table and that is what is important. And National Secretary of the Australian Workers Union, Dan Walton, says the collaboration at the Jobs and Skills Summit was surprisingly productive. I think if you fast forward a couple of days or even a week to suggest that we'd be standing up here jointly with the government and the National Farmers Federation in spirit of cooperation, 
probably a little questioned uh, whether or not you've been on the drink. But um, what the last couple of days has shown is some genuine uh, desires across the board to try and reach out and find some meaningful solutions to the big problems that face us in the agriculture industry. What we know in agriculture, it's a big and dear part for our union, is that there are many, many workers working in such a variety of different types of work. And unfortunately for us, we've been trying to focus on attracting local workers to get into the industry, to drive down the youth unemployment rates in our regions, to give them an opportunity to have a good career, safe workplace and earn a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. We also recognise the need to bring workers in from overseas to fill those gaps that we can't otherwise fill with local workers and to do so in a way that gives them dignity and respects and protects their paying conditions. And I think the outline that we've managed to strike gives us an agenda to work forward to solve all of those problems so that the great farmers, those great farmers that are doing the right thing in the industry, have some confidence that this government is trying to solve their problems to try and make sure that they've got the skills and capable workers on their farms to make sure that whatever it is, be it in the piggeries, be it in the feedlots, be it in our grain industry, agriculture industry, or be it for our workers in the fruit and veg industry, that they are being looked after, that they've got a place in regional Australia for a good and quality job. But there are some potential workers available who may not be getting considered. The jobless rate for people with a disability is more than twice the national average. And that means farmers who are crying out for help may be overlooking some willing workers just because of a fear of the unknown. Jennifer Nichols has the story. I haven't weeded this patch yet. Daniel Stewart graduated from Griffith University with a forensic science degree, but after being rejected time and time again, he was losing hope of ever finding any job, let alone a good one. I've applied for hundreds and thousands of jobs since I I finished my forensic degree, and I got lots of it is with regret letters. The 31-year-old's job search was made all the harder by the fact his autism spectrum disorder made it difficult for him to understand social rules. I really put my heart and soul and I really tried my best but was like chasing the end of the rainbow trying to figure out what they wanted and it's been a long, harsh and frustrating journey to come to any stable employment. Working age people with disabilities are more than twice as likely to be unemployed than those without a disability. Their unemployment rate is 10% compared to the national jobless rate of 3.4%. I absolutely do want to close the gap. Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth told Radio National Breakfast that breaking down barriers to employment is key on her agenda for the National Jobs and Skills Summit in Canberra this week. I think that people with a disability deserve the same opportunities as those living without a disability. And so I've recently, last week, had a roundtable to uh, flesh out some of these issues. And it's really, really clear that there are some attitudinal barriers that we definitely need to break down. One of the common uh, sort of thoughts that business have is that they'll have to make really expensive modifications in their workplace. Well, I guess one of the challenges is to get the information out there that firstly, about 88% of people living with a disability of working age don't need any modifications in the workplace whatsoever. Jill Nash is Acting Regional Coordinator for Epic Assist, a disability jobs agency in outer North 
Brisbane. Her company has successfully placed workers on a poultry farm, herb and edible flower farm and in a berry packing shed. I think it's a lot to do with educating the employers on what they would get out of somebody with a disability and how they would work for them and and how loyal they are. What are the challenges sometimes in placing people? Sometimes there is the lack of understanding of what that disability is and until you can educate the employers and the managers and the staff, they don't really understand why their employers are doing what they're doing or saying what they're saying. Daniel Stewart's break came when a disability services employment agency matched him to top-of-the-range flowers at Curramore near Mullaney in February last year. The work I do here is not unrelated to forensic science. How is that? Because I'm pulling all the criminal weeds (laughs) out from the the plants and I'm also patrolling all the criminal thistles like a policeman. His self-esteem and skills have blossomed since he started work weeding, planting and harvesting flowers for organic farmers Lodi and Yucca Palmea in the Sunshine Coast hinterland. We always like to think that a nice, friendly, happy workplace is what we would like and so that's what we try and make for our workers too. In return, they've got incredibly loyal employees and solved their problem of getting full-time workers. Well, it's been great. It was a challenge until Joel and Daniel came here, that's for sure. We do put time into teaching them how to do things and it's nice that they stay Obviously, we, we must be doing something right, yeah. I guess. I think it would be a really hard adjustment for them to work anywhere else, right? And I wouldn't suggest to anyone that they should hunt these guys down. <laughs> <laughs> They're ours. <laughs> Hands off. <laughs> That's Lodi and Yucca Palmea from Top of the Range Flowers ending Jennifer Nichols' report. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Consumers are turning to frozen and canned vegetables as bad weather, input costs and COVID disruptions continue to push up the price of fresh food. CEO of Richie's IGA, Fred Harrison, says he's never in his lifetime seen the costs of fresh food across all fruit and vegetable types remain so high for so long. He says sales of fresh beans are now down 60 to 80%. With pricing on a number of items up significantly, we're finding sales in those products have uh, slumped considerably. For example, most of our stores would have ordered a box of beans five, six days a week. Some stores would have ordered two boxes of beans. Uh, we're now in a position with beans being the price they are, seeing uh, sales down by 60, 70, 80%. So the price is uh, certainly impacting people's shopping intent. And people are looking at alternates, I mean, frozen beans, for example, uh, whilst they have perhaps gone up in price a little bit, they haven't gone up anywhere near the price of fresh. So people are looking at alternatives such as frozen beans and frozen vegetables or transferring across to vegetable prices that are cheaper, things like carrots, celery. Uh, we're seeing those sorts of products uh, significantly increasing volume as well, which is just a sign of the times at the moment. When you talk about beans there, we know, for example, uh, the the famous example of expensive lettuces, that was due to yep. flooding in Queensland. But why beans at the moment? Why are they expensive? Basically the same story. It's uh, just getting them, uh, getting beans uh, picked, packed and delivered is just a, a general shortage of beans in the market. And look, there's still a lot of COVID out there in Australia and it's impacting workforces. So if you can't get your workforce in numbers in the pack or deliver, it does create shortage of stock. So it's not just the weather we've gone through in um, 
northern New South Wales and uh, Queensland. It's also businesses being able to have the people on the ground to pick, pack and deliver. Have you seen this happen before where consumers do end up going for cheaper options due to cost of living? Yes, look, I mean, there are there've always been times where there might be two or three different products that have been impacted because of either fires or floods. But it's not two or three products. We're now seeing most produce items impacted one way or another. So this is the first time we've seen produce prices so widespread as far as uh, impacted with increased costs and therefore retails to consumers. So I would say in the 47 years I've been in the industry, this is the worst I've seen uh, fruit and veg generally. So things like rent and energy costs have continued to rise over the years and in recent times have exploded. But food prices have remained sort of at a steady, relatively low price for many years now. I've spoken to farmers who say that someone's going to have to pay for this, whether that be having cheap labour or having more expensive produce. So do you think that food prices are set to stay slightly higher than they have been for the past decade? Simple answer is uh, yes. And you're right in what you say. We've had deflation in fruit and vegetables pretty much for the last five, six, seven years. I mean, there have been years where produce prices, and we monitor this by the week, produce some weeks has been 2 5 10% cheaper than it was the previous year. And a lot of that was we had perfect growing conditions. There weren't the floods and we did have a bit of rain and we did have sunshine at the right time. There were no disasters with crops, so there was an oversupply of produce. And when there's an oversupply, prices are cheap. So, look, we did have 10 very good years of stability, as you've said not only in produce, but uh, also in grocery. I mean, there's a lot of grocery price products on our shelves that didn't have price increases five, six, seven, eight years. So it's almost an equalisation. I mean, we've had 10 very good years. Now there's almost been a couple of years of catch-up. And uh, uh, it's not great, but if you look at it over, say, a 10- to 15-year period, our food prices have been very stable on the whole. There's been a change in these last uh, 12 months. CEO of Richie's IGA, Fred Harrison speaking there. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Exotic diseases have been making news headlines around Australia recently after a foot and mouth disease outbreak in Indonesia. But the agriculture sector is also concerned about another disease that's on our doorstep that hasn't been getting as much attention, lumpy skin disease. To find out more, Kath Sullivan from the National Rural Reporting team joins us now. Kath, welcome to Countrywide. Firstly, can you explain what lumpy skin disease is? G'day, Jane. Well, you know, there's been a lot said about foot and mouth disease and the risks that that poses to Australian agriculture in the last few months. People might be familiar with the tourists who came from Denpasar with their, um, their McDonald's food who was considered to be jeopardising Australia's biosecurity. But there's this other disease, it's called lumpy skin disease, and it affects cattle too. It's also been found in Indonesia in the past year, and it could have devastating consequences for Australia's cattle, beef, dairy, basically any export that is linked to to cattle or buffalo could be impacted. And the federal government estimates a $7.4 billion wipeout to that trade in the first year um, of a lumpy skin disease detection in Australia. So it's certainly one to be feared. And it's one that experts actually say is almost three times more likely than an actual foot and mouth disease outbreak. 
So that's what will happen to the economy, Kath. But what actually happens to cattle when they get lumpy skin disease? Okay, well, the mortality rates for um, infected livestock are quite low, relatively speaking, but it is an awful condition and there'd be huge animal welfare ramifications if this disease, which is actually spread by mosquitoes and insects, possibly even ticks, was to come into Australia. I want to stress, lumpy skin disease isn't in Australia at the moment. Um, And if it was to come here, humans wouldn't be affected and there'd be no food safety implications for people who eat um, the meat or dairy that come from infected livestock. But it creates these nasty lesions, not only on the skin of the cattle and water buffalo, but also on the internal organs. Um, And then that obviously has... um, causes issues, production losses. Um, it can lead to some um, poor animal welfare outcomes. It's really interesting to note that lumpy skin disease is actually present in about 50 other countries, at least that I could count, um, according to the World Animal Health Organization. Um, lots of places around the world. It started out in Africa. It spread to parts of Russia, India, um, and obviously Southeast Asia is such a concern for Australian producers because we know that this disease spreads by insects, can travel on the wind. In fact, I heard one uh, scientist say it could travel at up to 28 kilometres a day, which is pretty scary when you think about it. We heard a lot with the foot and mouth uh, situation, as you mentioned earlier in Indonesia, about some of the biosecurity measures that the government has put in place to Mm -hmm. protect Australia's agriculture and uh, industry. Are the same sort of measures in place to prevent lumpy skin disease entering the border? Well, it's sort of a little bit different, isn't it? As I was talking to one producer as part of this story, they said, you know, it doesn't matter how many foot baths you've got or how much you find somebody for bringing meat into Australia. Um, It really doesn't factor in for lumpy skin disease. This is going to be brought in, if it's brought in, by insects, things like mosquitoes that can travel in the wet season. The concern is that bugs could bring it into the northern part of Australia. Possibly you've got livestock or feral animals out that won't be seen for months until they come back in in the dry. So there's concern that it could spread that way. But for those people who are across Australia's biosecurity risks, they might have also heard of Japanese encephalitis virus, which is another vector-borne disease which affects pigs. Um, And it can affect humans. There's a difference. Um, Lumpy skin disease does not affect humans. But this vector-borne disease, Japanese encephalitis virus, has actually spread it was in the north of Australia, but it's actually made its way as far south as South Australia and the New South Wales Riverina and Victoria. When you've been speaking to these farmers saying that the foot mats really aren't going to tackle this issue, what do they mm-hmm. want the government to do? <laughs> well, it's apart from getting a great big um, can of Aerogard and just spraying Australia <laughs> all over, uh, look, it is a really challenging virus to try and protect Australia from. And for that reason, some people I spoke to did seem to think that it could an outbreak of lumpy skin disease could be inevitable. Um, But when it arrives, well, nobody really knows. Something that's quite interesting is the role of vaccines when we talk about these diseases. Um, You can't actually use a vaccine in Australia for either lumpy skin disease or foot and mouth disease. Um, to have the the vaccines in Australia um, is akin to saying that you have the virus in Australia, essentially. But something the Australian government has done has been to purchase vaccines for the Indonesian government to use against both viruses in that country, where we know that the, the virus has been detected. Kat Sullivan, thank you so much for your time today on Countrywide. Thanks, Jane. 
National Rural Reporter, Kath Sullivan. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. There's been a lot of technical advances in dairy, but one of them that is getting a lot of attention is the production of synthetic milk. It's created in a lab and it is designed to look and taste exactly like animal-based milk, but it doesn't produce methane emissions. There's a small handful of companies in Australia and New Zealand currently developing synthetic milk. However, it still might be a few years before you can see it on the supermarket shelves. But where does this leave dairy farmers and what might the future of dairy in Australia look like? Annie Brown spoke to PhD candidate Malia Bojevic, who is researching the future of dairy. This kind of synthetic milk would enable like a continuation of like traditional western style diets I guess in the sense that like you wouldn't necessarily need to give up milk or cheese or yogurt as you know it Um, whereas the plant-based products um, they don't necessarily have the same like texture taste or even there's debates around the nutritional properties for different types of milks Um, so the plant-based milk is kind of it's not for everyone like some people want to keep having like you know full fat milk in their coffee or you know Greek yogurt or you know ice cream that they're used to and so this kind of synthetic milk it's being proposed that it would kind of occupy that space and from my understanding it would be wouldn't be lumped in the same category as plant-based milk so um, global consumption of plant-based milk has increased particularly in the global north in North American markets and also European markets so consumers are shifting more towards consuming plant-based milks but um, on the flip side, um, in the global south, which is obviously a bit of a generalization, but there is increasing uh, production and consumption of dairy in um, certain regions of the world, particularly in China, Pakistan and India, there's been an increase in dairy consumption. So there's kind of different trends happening in tandem. And it's interesting how the synthetic milk space can service both trends in a way so like people that are trying to get away from animal products for environmental ethical reasons this might be an answer for them and then for people who are looking to introduce more dairy into their diet this might also pander to that market too. So it's really about retaining that taste of animal-based dairy but without using animals. Yeah I mean it seems like it like none of these companies are coming out and saying we're creating an entirely new product nothing you've ever tasted before if anything the kind of message seems to be like it's exactly what you're used to. Like we're not we're not reinventing the wheel in terms of taste and texture, but we are reinventing how you get it, I think is the main message coming out of these industries. So where does this leave dairy farmers and in, in leading into the future? What kind of future is there left for them if we move towards synthetic milk? Yeah, I don't think these technologies are being invented as a way to wipe out traditional dairy. I think people will always want traditional dairy and like, you know, artisanal dairy products. But in terms of global consumption of dairy, there's definitely pushes happening to reduce the global dairy herd. And it seems that this seems to, I guess, answer that question of how to achieve it. PhD candidate from Macquarie University, Milena Bojevic, speaking to Annie Brown. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Since 
the devastating black summer bushfires, life has been pretty tough for the glossy black cockatoo. The fires destroyed most of the trees they feed on from across Victoria and New South Wales. The bird is found from Yungala in eastern Queensland to Lake Entrance in far east Victoria. And it's disappeared completely from parts of western Victoria and southeastern South Australia. Recently, the remaining population has been put on the endangered species list. But there is hope that East Gippsland farmers in Victoria will help the cockatoo population rebuild. Peter Somerville has the story. The glossy black cockatoo, often confused for the yellow-tailed cockatoo, which is also black, is in a precarious situation in East Gippsland. It's estimated there are around 200 of the birds left in the region. But now, Penny Gray, a facilitator of Far East Victoria Landcare, says farmers and landholders may hold the key to the species' survival. We've partnered with BirdLife Australia to set up some what we're calling sanctuaries on private land, uh, planting in principle casuarina, the, the only feed tree for the species. And we're encouraging any landholders from basically lakes entrance through to the border who have a little bit of land that they can put aside to help us with that um, to get in touch. BirdLife Australia's East Gippsland Conservation Coordinator Deb Sullivan says the bushfires hit the species hard. Population declines have been so bad across their whole distribution range the bird was actually federally listed just a fortnight ago. How significant is that? It's extremely significant. We're looking at an estimated population across the eastern seaboard for only 7,500 birds. Uh, so any population declines on that um, is, is quite significant for the species. We're also looking at losses of habitat, uh, fragmentation and reduced breeding capacity for those birds with a lack of natural hollows. Um, so we do have uh, a whole lot of influences that are going to affect the birds in the future. Penny Gray says it's an urgent request. The sooner people can get in and get in touch with us, the faster we can get these plants in the ground. Is there any particular um, eligibility requirements or particular requirements for the people you'd, you'd like to hear from? In principle, we're willing to, to take any expression of interest. We will develop a matrix, though, that, that will prioritise areas where the birds are known to be um, and or areas that fill in corridors for the species. We're also, we've been building a um, distribution and mapping extent of the birds in East Gippsland. So we're looking at where they're actually frequenting, looking at their home ranges, where they're breeding uh, and where we can see gaps uh, in the landscape, where we can actually create these corridors that we can work with land care and the landholders of East Gippsland to actually increase habitat for these species, which is great. How long have you been working on this species? Uh, so originally under the bushfire recovery grants, we um, started looking at the population of uh, glossy black cockatoos in East Gippsland and looking at their immediate needs post bushfire. And that started with artificial hollow installations where we knew there was um, birds frequenting the areas and lack of, of natural hollows for them to use. Um, and then our funding increased with... A, a, funding grant from the Hugh Williamson Foundation which is we've been working on now for about a year and a half and we've still got a year and a half fortunately to go on that with thanks to the Hugh Williamson's grant which is where we are collaborating now with Landcare. It will take time for the trees to produce seeds but there may be other benefits before that. So for a landholder that expresses interest we will be in touch with them, we will let them know um, of their success or not 
Um, the Casuarina seedlings will be provided and there will be some subsidies for fencing to protect the Casuarina stands. Whilst this seems like a long time to wait to see the response of a glossy black cockatoo on a landholder's property, in the meantime it's providing habitat for smaller species that are moving through the landscape as well, um, but it's also providing a future security for the birds where other landscape may be um, subjected to management practices um, or the birds' distribution might change. Um, at least the birds have got a food security going forward as well, which is really important also with uh, climate change um, in our current landscape. We're looking at uh, slower production of Allocasuarina cones on on trees so any food security we can gain from this is brilliant. BirdLife Australia's East Gippsland Conservation Coordinator Deb Sullivan speaking there with Peter Somerville. That's all we've got time for today on Countrywide. For more rural news from around the country you can head to abc.net.au forward slash rural.